Morrison bungles the economy, Labor launches economic policy, and coalition campaign chaos. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me from the Harbour City is the lovely, the magnificent author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults and star of Sunday's Today Show this week <laughs> is my lovely partner Van Batham. How are you Van? Well, Sydney is very wet and rainy and the gloomy mood, I've got to say, accompanies the one that I have as I miss you terribly uh, as I'm up in Sydney again. Again. I know. I miss you too. But there's good news for you and me and the people who, for some reason, seem to enjoy seeing us do this kind of work. You will be home this weekend and we will be be together again. in Bendigo in the morning on Sunday, which, you know, Bendigo, being a Ballarat boy, I will I will bite my tongue and stand in solidarity with the workers of the world in Bendigo. Yes, because Ben and I will be in Bendigo for May Day, which is, of course, the international day of the organised working class, and we will be marching with union comrades in Bendigo. And then I will be addressing a, a trade union breakfast to talk about you know, the world in which we live, uh, which will be amazing, which will be absolutely fabulous. And then we get in the car from Bendigo. Somehow Ben will record the weekend wrap on the way and we are going to Clunes, Victoria, not New South Wales, but Clunes, Victoria, because I am talking about my book QAnon and On and what it means to be bold along with some other awesome people, including Rebecca Lim, at the Clunes Booktown Book Festival. It's going to be a fantastic day out. So if you are in or around Central Victoria, join Van and I in Bendigo, then in Clunes. And, uh, of course, the weekend wrap will come out possibly with the ambient sounds of the Central Victorian, uh, Central Highlands, roads and bird life. I was going to say, they are my favourite sounds in the world, as I'm painfully aware of whenever I'm up in Sydney. There's there's no road and bird sounds like Central Victorian Highlands road and bird sounds. <laughs> well, it's also been another huge week in Australian politics, Fan. Anthony Albanese has been in COVID isolation, comes out tomorrow, I think, doesn't he? True, but various members of his shadow cabinet have uh, risen to the challenge of running an election campaign with a leader who's in COVID isolation. Um, And certainly I think it's actually been a really good opportunity for uh, the Labor leadership to demonstrate that they are very much a team. I think there were some concerns about the, the leader being, um, you know, in in COVID isolation, which is certainly something we haven't had to engage in a uh, federal election campaign in Australia before. But hey, new times, new chaos. So that's been very interesting. Yes, to re- to rehash a term we thought we'd abandoned after twenty twenty, we live in unprecedented times, don't we? Oh, it's been so unprecedented for so long. I don't even know what's precedented anymore. Does anyone know? I don't know that we do, but speaking of unprecedented times, 
There has been some huge economic data that has come out today, Wednesday the 27th of April 2022. And I should point out that Ben and I have a video link going and I can see he's got his happy little stat face on. Look, it's only happy because I enjoy stats so much. The stats themselves are quite terrible, Van. Yes. It's it's pretty grim. And look, anybody who... Uh, has been in a shop in the last six months, knows how grim it is. We've seen wages go backwards $800 in the last year. People know prices have been going up. Well, today we got confirmation with the biggest rise in consumer price index, that's the inflation number, since the introduction of the GST. What was the number, Van? Uh, The CPI the consumer price index is up 5.1%. And that is enormous. That is absolutely enormous. Remember, of course, you know, prices went up with the GST because they had actually applied a 10% tax to everything. So the idea that there's been this creep in the economy and cost of living is extraordinary. But Ben, you know this, was this the consumer price index rise that was predicted in the budget? It was not. And this is why Morrison has bungled the economy. The budget was less than two months ago. And in those numbers, Morrison said inflation would be at about 4.25% by the middle of the year. Now it's 5.1% and we haven't even hit June. There are some now predicting that inflation will jump as high as 6% by the middle of the year. Wow. Wow. Huge impacts, right? Because essentially it means, so last year we know that workers lost about $800 from their pay because their wages were not keeping pace with inflation. And, of course, the figures that have come out today suggest that uh, this year that will mean wages not keeping price with with inflation will mean a $2,000 loss to the pay packet. Now, that's a huge amount of money. You know, for for many people – that's their mortgage payment. You know that that's a that's a huge cut. That's a huge cut. Oh, and sixty six Mac Mac lipsticks. Sixty six. <laughs> well, you know, and it reminded me uh, that there was another number that kind of sailed through the budget, and that was that the Morrison government anticipated consumer spending would continue, but that household savings would halve over the period of the budget. Now. That goes to show they know wages are not keeping up. They know that for people to survive, they have to dip into whatever savings they have. And if you're one of the many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Australians who don't have savings, well, you're just going to go backwards. You're just you're just not going to be able to buy things. It's really, really shocking. And it's particularly shocking in the context of an election where the Liberals are running on, we're economic managers, we're great economic managers, we're such great economic managers, um, to the point where it becomes almost like a, a meaningless mantra, like chanting the word banana over and over again. Pretty soon you stop actually remembering what a banana is. And putting these into context, um, ben did some figures, which I'm going to read out because they're just totally amazing, um, compiling where these price increases have happened within the economy that are hitting households. So we're looking at a 5% surge in the building cost for new homes, an 11% jump in fuel prices, but that's enormous, a 6.3% increase in tertiary education fees, 
vegetables are up 6.6%. Soft drinks and juices are up 5.6%. Fruit is up 4.9%. And beef is up 76 And, of course, this all adds up. If your wages aren't going up to meet these prices, well, you're worse off. Like it, it's, it's really that simple. And, of course, Ben, the Morrison government turned around, turn around and they say that they have no control over wages. Is this true? I suspect it is not. Well, it's, it's not true. And, you know, we, we've talked about this on the show before, that there are three key ways that wages go up. One, you've got this unique set of skills. So, you're, you know, you're a basketball legend or a football legend or you're a heart surgeon and, you know, those skills are in demand. The second one is that actually – Government sets the rules that determine how bargaining works, what the minimum wage is, but it also directly employs people. It also sets the wages of the people it employs. It sets the terms of contracts for people who provide goods and services to government. There's lots of ways that government directly and we as citizens indirectly by electing a government determine how wages are set. And then as individuals collectively we can determine how wages are set because we can take action by joining our union. And there's some good examples of that happening right now in two sectors that are directly impacted and shaped by government, isn't there, Van? Yeah, there is. There's what's going on in aged care. And, of course, this week we've seen some activism from the United Workers Union, who's one of the unions who represent aged care workers. They have 7,000 workers who are backing in industrial action that will take place before the end of May, demanding like better wages and conditions in the aged care sector. Conditions that have been identified as one of the compromises of quality provided to people in aged care because we are not paying workers in that sector properly and we're not providing the kind of funded adequate support that those workers should have. And Likewise with teachers. We know New South Wales Teachers Federation, the, the teachers in New South Wales will be doing a walkout on May the 4th. They're working up to 15 hours of unpaid admin and compliance work. And, you know, we should remember that Morrison's budget cut funding to public schools by nearly $600 million. Like it's oh, a yeah, huge amount of money. $2 billion to private schools. I mean, and, and this is what's so frustrating, you know, like there are constantly opportunities within the intersectional economic planning of the government to raise wages and, and create jobs. And I got particularly frustrated today. I went on Twitter and I saw a commentator saying, oh, it's wrong for Scott Morrison. So Scott Morrison has been criticising Anthony Albanese because Albanese has been saying from COVID isolation and and before that, that that a Labor government will raise wages. And this commentator was saying, oh, it's wrong for Scott Morrison to say that they can't um, because Scott Morrison himself um, says he's going to create a million jobs. And we all know that wages and jobs are set by the bosses. And it's like, well, that's not actually true. Like we've just given you two examples, aged care and school teachers, government can just improve conditions directly because they are their employers. That is what a public service is. And, you know, public servants are not just teachers and aged care workers, disability workers and, you know, people who work in infrastructure and maintenance and creation. It's also where government chooses to spend their money, like building infrastructure and 
creating jobs and deciding whether they are going to be like Commonwealth jobs or not or govern under Commonwealth employment conditions. Putting those kind of policy priorities around jobs in the economy, one, creates jobs, but also creates competitive opportunities that commercial employers have to match. Because if you can earn, you know, $120,000 a year with, you know, flexible work and stable conditions and God help us something like workplace childcare, the dream within a dream and those kind of provisions, if your commercial employer isn't paying you at that rate or offering those conditions, well, of course you're going to take a public service job. This is one of the many levers within the economy. We have to approve conditions. But also government are absolutely in a position to determine wages more broadly, Ben. Absolutely. And and they do this all the time, all the time. You know, there's absolute acknowledgement outside of the election context that government does this that the setting of public sector wages influences private sector wages, that the setting of public sector terms and conditions for contracting sets terms and conditions throughout whole sections of industry, whether it's construction, whether it's uh, infrastructure, whether it's childcare, whether it's aged care, whether it's the NDIS. I mean, the NDIS exists entirely on the basis of government funding. The government has huge, huge amount of power to influence both the price of services, but also the wages. And one of the one of the prices that stands out in that list you read out before is around tertiary education fees going up six point three percent. Like we should not forget that the Morrison government denied universities access to JobKeeper at the same time as they had spent a decade basically making universities dependent on foreign. Uh, students paying full fees. They weren't able to come in during the pandemic. At the same time, they didn't get JobKeeper. At the same time, Morrison changed the way that universities were funded and increased the fees on students. These are all decisions that government has made that has impacted both the stability of work, the nature of wage rises in the sector, and of course, the prices to consumers. There are so many examples here. When you look at beef, up 7.6%. Morrison loves to talk about free trade agreements. What's one of the biggest things that he puts into every free trade agreement? Selling more Australian beef overseas. There is a finite supply of beef in this country, and if you can get a better price for it by selling it to Japan or Indonesia, that's what producers do. So there's lots of things here. The fuel price. You know, Van, we've all we've both heard Morrison talk about Ukraine, and that that's that's his big excuse today, right? Like that it's the Ukraine, the fault of conflict in the Ukraine. But this is the thing: like economies are not fixed. You know, economies don't exist in some kind of perpetual balance that's determined by, you know, when they come off the production line at the economy factory. Economies are intersecting relationships of institutions and corporations and governments and individuals and they are complex beasts and they're not separate from what goes on in the world. You know, we can't pretend there is no war in Ukraine or that doesn't have an effect. If any country on earth fell into the sea tomorrow and vanished, that would have an impact on the global economy. Everything is networked now, where things can be traded, why they're traded, what restrictions on trade goes on. Like that affects us. 
And to pretend that governments are totally powerless when these things happen is it's actually nonsense. It's dishonest. I mean, it is. I'm- it is absolutely dishonest. And it puts us in a situation other other Morrison and the Liberals are just lying about what they understand about the economy or they don't know, in which case that's a problem. And this, you know, mantra of we're such great economic managers doesn't really hold a lot of water in either case. Well, and, and this is the thing about the fuel supply, and people will have heard me talk about this. I know you've heard me talk about this ad nauseum, which is our national emergency fuel reserve, which is not held in Australia but held on the other side of the Pacific in the United States, the world's largest ocean, which, of course, now the Solomon Islands, which has done a security pact with China, sits between us and our fuel reserve, a fuel reserve which we don't have Australian-flagged oil tankers to go and pick up anyway. Like, there are so many, as you say- Are you seriously talking about the strategic fuel reserve again? Well, yeah, because yes, it, 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 because it is, the Solomon is. Islands are in the way. But anybody who's trying to work out why the Solomon <laughs> Islands have become such a big thing, yes, we cannot access our strategic fuel reserves because the Solomon Islands Pacific Nation has done a deal with China. Potentially, and- potentially could be an issue. I'm not saying it is now, and I want to. I don't want to ramp up the rhetoric around that, right? But you're right. Like there is. There are so many intersectional pieces of policy. Government is complex, but we need people who understand what they're doing. And as you say, either Morrison is lying and he understands exactly what he's doing and he knows what he's doing is bad, or he doesn't understand what he's doing, in which case he shouldn't be there because he's just cost Australians $2,000 plus all the knock-on effects, right? And I want people to ask this question. Who do you think Scott Morrison is more invested in ideologically and politically? Do you think Scott Morrison cares that you're paying more for beef? Or do you think Scott Morrison cares that agribusinesses that supply beef to international markets have a larger profit margin? Whose side of that equation do you think Scott Morrison is on? And how do you think that affects you? It's a very good question, Van. It's a very good question. Because I think today's numbers clearly show what side Morrison is on. You know, and there'll be lots of talk about now interest rates going up and this is going to have an impact on people's mortgages. And there's no question that that's what's going to happen. We're seeing it around the world where there is inflation, interest rates go up. It's a pretty standard set of economic levers uh, and economic processes that follow each other. But of course, this time, Unlike in previous elections, the makeup of our economy is different. So the last time interest rates were a big issue in an election was probably 2004, when you had probably around 60% of Australians had a mortgage. That number is now more like a third of Australians have a mortgage. So yes, those people, when mortgage rates go up, ourselves included, will have less money. About a third of Australians now own their own home outright. They are often self-funded retirees. For them, an interest rate increase means more money coming from their investments. That's a big group of people that Morrison tries to appeal to. We saw it at the last election when he talked about the so-called retiree tax. Which was not a tax and didn't apply to retirees. It was trying to stop the government giving free money from taxpayers 
to shareholders, a an economic loophole that only exists in Australia and it would be quite sensible to close. And might be a reason why so many of those people have already paid off their mortgages, right? And then there's they a- get free money from the government on the basis of their profit-making shareholdings. Yes, correct. Then there's a third of Australians who are in rentals. And now interest rate rises for them could run the full gamut from no impact at all because their landlord owns the property, there's no mortgage, they don't really mind, they've got a good relationship, through to increasing rents because that mortgage has gone up and the rent goes up to help cover that, through to being evicted because now the landlord can't afford to have an investment property and has to move into it. So there's a huge range of impacts that will happen on real people. That's before we get into all the kind of broader macroeconomic impacts and impacts on companies and what it might mean for jobs if companies can't borrow money cheaply. All that stuff is there too, right? But let's not get into that today. We don't have the time. What we need to know is that rising inflation cuts people's wages, means interest rates will go up, and the politics of interest rates are incredibly complex, so much more complex now than they were whatever it was eight years ago, the last time this sort of thing was on the on the radar, which is why you don't hear Morrison running so hard on the interest rate fear uh, campaign that perhaps John Howard did in 2004 because Morrison needs the votes of people who will benefit from a rise in interest rates. It's a very perverse kind of neoliberal economic model, isn't it? Oh, it is. And this is the framework of neoliberal economic modelling. You know, it's about a small group of people making money because they've already made money, realistically, and conferring political power in those people over other people by creating false paradigms like saying, oh, it's only the boss that determines your wages and it's only the boss who determines who gets a job. Like it's a, it's a fantasy. It's a series of priorities that are literally just about the concentration of wealth, not about an, an entire community having enough money to, you know, live with comparable living standards and to meet those living standards without stress. Well, as we always say, Van, you know, if you want better wages, more job security and safer workplaces, and I note that today the ACTU's put out a, a, a report about how workplace safety standards have declined under the Morrison government and the increase in workplace deaths is really, really shocking. Uh, but if you want better wages, more safety and more secure work, what do we say? Join a union. Just join a union. Seriously, like it's one of the many levers that Morrison has over the economy, any government has over the economy, is to allow workers to collectively bargain for wages and conditions. That is unionism. That is what collective bargaining is. And it is absolutely true. Union members have better conditions than non-union members. Union members, unionized industries have better wages than non-unionized industries. It is in your direct interest and your collective interest in terms of getting the piece of the pie that you deserve because you are just as important a part of the economy as any other person join a union. And Ben, what do we tell people to do if they want to join a union? Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W, stands for week on Wednesday. 
don't worry, we don't get a percentage of your union fee. It's just so that we know that people listening to the podcast do actually join the union. And it's really great when we get messages telling us that people have joined because they've listened to us. People becoming delegates, people getting organized. It's awesome. And there's lots that can be done. Ben, one of the things that has happened today is that, of course, Labor has timed the announcement of their economic policy paper for today on the probably with some concept that there would be a bad CPI number. 4.25 wouldn't have been good, by the way, if it had only been that. But certainly it's much worse than that at 5.1. Labor has announced its economic policy and a couple of the points that they focused on go to that issue around public sector work, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing. You know, the Labor are talking about the big the the big infrastructure vision for this country and looking at delivering delivering the services to meet needs, specifically around recommendations that have been made by the Royal Commission, I'd like to point out, into aged care. Like these are tangible, practical things that constitute economic policy. And when Morrison and Liberals talk about economic policy, I just want everybody to be aware, and I think we've mentioned this before, they're talking about the economic fortunes of a handful of rich people and corporations. You know, yeah. they genuinely think that if you keep, if you help rich people become even richer, that the wealth will trickle down to everybody else. That is what trickle down economics means. But of course, that hasn't happened. We currently live in one of the periods with the most gross. Um, division in wealth in history. Like wealth inequality is extraordinary. It's the highest it's been in Australia for 75 years. And that's the economy that they've built. When I talk about, you know, economic prosperity and the economy doing well, I mean, how well is it doing for the poorest people in the economy? How well is it doing for the average household? Who is getting you know, an appropriate share to live with comfort and confidence because comfort and confidence in an economy, in jobs, in opportunities, in educational opportunities, in all of those things, like that to me is the bedrock value of how an economy is supposed to work. Couldn't agree more, Van. And I think Labor's announcements today, there's sort of three key points and and they do go to some degree to what you're talking about there. You know, the number one, they want to reduce spending on outsourced contractors, consultants. These are often part of multinational corporations, very large billion-dollar businesses, and also the use of labour hire. We know that in things like My Age Care, the NDIS, labour hire is used to put in place an arbitrary staffing cap, in inverted commas, and then workers get paid less but still do the same job as somebody else and they have less conditions and less job safety as well. So Labor saying we're going to fix all that up in the public sector. We're going to reduce the cost because obviously if you're paying a labor hire company as well as having to pay the wages, there's no saving there. It's just the money's not going to the worker. It's going to a corporation. It's talking about auditing the waste and the rorts of the Morrison government. I know you've got a thousand and one of these in your head about the different rorts that exist. Starbucks, sports rorts, grasslands, wetland, like it goes on and on. Land valued at $3 million that sold mysteriously to somebody adjacent to the Liberal Party for $30 million. Like the absolute, the just insane 
arbitrage of, you know, government handing out money to vested interests, friends, the fact that uh, Viva, who's CEO, who's chair rather, not CEO, is Robert Hill, former Howard government minister, makes it pretty clear that, uh, you know, like the favoritism is is. And they got a subsidy. They got a subsidy recently, they did, right? They did, and, and you know, it's a favoritism is not a force that disperses fortunes equally. I believe is the polite way of, dis- of describing it. And even, I mean, we've seen during the campaign Morrison making an announcement, a uh, hundred and twenty-four million dollar defence contract What's to hostel who, of course, uh, had imported workers from the Philippines and then stole wages from them and were found by Morrison's own watchdog as part of the government to have engaged in wage theft, creating a national security issue of Filipino workers who were exploited and had their wages stolen while working on an Australian defence contract. I don't know what your loyalty to Australian security priorities would be after that particular experience, Ben. Well, credit to the ETU because they organised with those workers, they got those workers paid, and they told Morrison's office, they wrote Morrison a letter two weeks before he went to Austral to make that announcement and still... He made that announcement, hasn't responded. It has now been picked up by the mainstream media and a huge shout out to the crew at the ETU for making that, for refusing to let go of that story because that is a classic waste and raw issue. And the third point that Labor put out today was having a minimum 15% tax rate on multinational corporations. Oh, I love this. This is my favourite. I tweeted this just with the words, sunshine. (laughs) Well, you know, the thing here is this is actually the OECD position. This is not Labor going out on a limb. To be fair, what they're doing is they're saying we will be part of the global economy and not be one of those countries that, you know, ends up in the news like, you know, the Cayman Islands or, you know, what Monte Carlo or tax havens in Luxembourg or whatever. I may be unfairly pigeonholing some of these, such as the stereotype around tax havens, right? But the the reality is labor will levy this tax and it means companies like Google, like Facebook, will have to actually pay tax. They will have their what they call debt-related deductions limited and it means that labor will raise from multinational corporations $1.89 billion dollars for the Commonwealth of Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing that people who profit from having access to this country should actually be obliged to pay something back. Incredible. I mean, this isn't even revolutionary. Once upon a time, we just called it fairness. And I just think it's absolutely fantastic that this has become a priority for Labor um, because we've seen there's a movement towards this all over the world. You know, the the nature of the globalised economy has given multinational corporations opportunities to minimise their tax, you know, avoiding sort of, sort of regulations here and tax minimising there and the rest of it. And going after money that's used to keep societies together I think is absolutely a priority. Hear, hear, I say. And we compare that, if we contrast that approach to the Liberals' uh, economic policy that they put out over Easter, which was really just a page and a bit, a bit of a pamphlet, which talked about a tax cap. Now, 
you know, oh, speed limit on taxation. Oh my god! Well, I mean, we've yeah, talked. Tim Madigan that- was saying this today. Like the three, the three word slogans and variations upon are just getting more and more ridiculous. But it is like, ridiculous. We're put a speed limit on taxation. Richard Dennis, who's one of Australia's best economists, he did a, a piece of commentary today where he was like, "What world do they live in where they think that?" And it's this is what I was talking about before when we we're talking about. You know, economies are not fit. Yeah. They're actually yeah. vulnerable to yeah. everything from changing tastes to land wars in Europe Ooh. and, you know, imaginary countries falling into the sea. Like you can't just go, oh, well, uh, we're just not. We're just having taxation. It's like I'm quite sure the people who found themselves having to crowdsource a helicopter to get rescued from a flood emergency see things like speed limit and taxation and go, hang on, does that mean that this ridiculous – situation where we pretend that environmental catastrophe is not happening. There's two points I want to make on that, Van, because you're absolutely right. Like it's a nonsense, arbitrary thing. And the first point I want to make is that the amount the Morrison government is currently spending in the budget and is forecasting to spend in the budget going forward over the next four years is more than its so-called speed limit, right? So it is it is by putting this arbitrary self-imposed cap on taxation ensuring that the budget is cooked and and in in the red for the foreseeable right like it's making that decision it's not making that clear to people but it's making that decision it's also put in 3 billion dollars of secret cuts in the budget in decisions taken but not yet announced so there will be budget cuts to try and bring spending back towards its so-called speed limit but the other thing is, do people remember when we used to have a debt cap and when America had a debt cap and when the UK had a debt cap and this was a debt ceiling and there, you know, it was so important that we didn't go over the debt ceiling and there's all this commentary about debt ceilings and if we went through the debt ceiling, economies would collapse. Mm, and- a debt roof would fall on our debt heads. Yeah. Like, it, be debt leaks. And as it, it turns out. When the debt rain came and there was no debt roof because the debt ceiling had fallen in, we'd just be debt drowned. Well, as it turns out, Total nonsense. Source our own helicopters. Oh God, everything is terrible. It's total nonsense. It's like these arbitrary ideological impositions of caps and ceilings and speed limits that don't take into account the actual reality of what's going on in the real economy with jobs, with wages, with investment decisions that are being made. And also ignores the fact with climate change, with catastrophes, with wars with trade embargoes, with all kinds of complex intersecting material and political events. And we know we know that government does have the capacity to shape these things. Because- yes, because when, the, then when there have been wars or when there have been national crises or different kinds of emergencies, governments have adapted to them. That is the nature of being a government. This is just why I find the whole economic managers thing. Like managing is about dealing with events as they happen. That's genuinely what management is. You know, the the world is a series of contingencies. If human life was predictable, there'd probably be no point in living it because what would we learn? 
But, I mean, the idea that a government can just pretend that reality doesn't exist, that reality is some kind of arbitrary balance sheet or, you know, some scribbled in predictions that vastly underestimate the real rise in cost of living, you know, from the eight-week period between a budget and, you know, the release of the consumer price index data. I mean, it, that's not management. If you were a company manager who got their budget that wrong, that shorter space of time, you probably wouldn't have a job. Like, let's be honest. Let's just be honest, right? Morrison is asking the Australian public to give him another three years in office, as Labor likes to say, to give the coalition a second decade in, in office on the back of getting it wrong, like within a space of two months, like getting it so wrong that that would probably cost most people their job. But he wants he wants us to re-elect him. Like it's crazy. He doesn't hold a hose, Ben. Doesn't hold a hose. Not. But you know, this is the other thing. So oh, can I just say, like, seeing the Morrison <laughs> posters up around, you know, where I am in Sydney, the electorate of Cook. Just, you know, I'm just like, what? What is the recommendation here? You went to Hawaii when the place was on fire. You abandoned entire entire communities when the place was flooding. You haven't fixed aged care. You haven't fixed disabilities care. Wages are not keeping price with inflation. The average Australian worker is $2,000 worse worse off. You know, what do you actually do? You get the numbers in the budget wrong, but you point at the other guy for misspeaking. You know, what are you actually campaigning on? Familiarity? And you can see this in the Liberal Party messaging. I really want to draw people's attention to this again. We're being told again and again, and, you know, there are media picking it up. Oh, we don't really know, Albanese. We don't really know. Despite the fact that he was genuinely given his nickname of Albo was something that people called him before it became politically convenient. You know, he's been around for more than 25 years in federal politics. He's a very known quantity. He's a former deputy prime minister. But Morrison's pitch is, oh, you know me better than the other guy. And it's better than the clown that you know than the guy that you don't, even though you already know him. And I'm like, this is, I mean, this is not compelling to me. No. This is and, not compelling. And and it is and it is a clown show. It is a campaign that is in chaos. And Morrison's, you know, Morrison's economic selling point around around taxes started to come unraveled today, Van. Like the, he there is a there is a measure in the budget, you know, we keep coming back to the budget. It's such an important document. They're called the low and middle income tax offset or LIPMO, or whatever the acronym is now, which basically meant a temporary tax cut for people on incomes below 90000 That's essentially what it was meant to be. It was first introduced about three years ago. It was supposed to be a one-off. COVID happened. It got rolled over and rolled over. It was extended this year, of course, because the budget was so close to the election. It was increased, so people got more money. And today... Uh, it was put on Morrison that this measure, which is essentially a two to three percent tax increase, will occur after the election. He was asked, "Will you extend it?" He said, "Well, it's always been a temporary measure. It's always been a temporary measure." And it was put to him, "But this means ten million households will have a tax increase after the election." Well, it was always a temporary measure, and taxes will always be lower under us. Taxes will. It's like, hang on a minute, you're going to increase taxes for 10 million households. At the same time, 
wages are not keeping pace with inflation. And and he's going to cut taxes for the very wealthiest individuals in this country. Oh, tax the wealth will trickle down at some point. At some point, it's bound to trickle down. I mean, the Liberals are such great economic managers. They're great economic managers. Banana, 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 banana. <laughs> it's really absolute chaos. Like the last, just in the last 24 hours, they have had total chaos. Matt Canavan, your favourite cosplaying senator. Oh, man. Has, has Oh, man. The one he, who wanted... You know, I'd just like to point out, Matt Canavan, my mother did eventually catch coronavirus, but fortunately it was at a time where vaccines had been mandated, something that you opposed. So she caught it in a hospital and the case she caught wasn't as bad. And by the way, my mother has fully recovered from coronavirus, if, if not from terminal cancer. Um, but Matt Canavan, I went on the Today Show, something which I do very much enjoy doing, and um, and he was arguing while my mother was in hospital, like one of the previous times that unvaccinated uh, health workers should be allowed to work there. And yes, I did. I did absolutely crack one because I just can't imagine how anybody, let alone a person who is a member of a government, a government, he's not just a random senator. Mm. He's not some crazy, you know, kind of. He's a former know, minister. Oh, absolutely. And he, these are the values that he holds. It's disgusting, disgraceful, dangerous and endangering to everybody. And yet, Ben, and yet uh, the Liberals appear to have pre-selected some um, some candidates with some very fascinating uh, political positions that are coming out in. Um, well, of course they have. And, I mean, Canavan's position. Canavan, yeah, I, just, I just went off on one on Matt Canavan, didn't I? I just you went did off. a little bit, but that's all right. Because Which is my cancerous mother to be treated by unvaccinated people. Well, I mean, his, his responses in that interview, if you, if you get a chance to check it out, uh, it was in December uh, on the Today Show. It's worth having a look because it really, I mean, it, it shows the man for who he is. He goes on the Steve Bannon podcast. He said that net zero is dead. His own, his own party today has said he's got to pull his head in. Of course, he won't. You know, they're worried about it during an election, but for the last three years he's been out there going on the Steve Bannon podcast, talking about anti-vaxxer talking points, talking, talking up sort of QAnon talking points, pro-Russia talking points, all these horrible things, absolute supporter of anti-vaxxers. And as you say, they've, the Liberals have pre-selected some anti-vaxxers. The candidate for Benelong which Benelong was John Howard's seat. Yeah, Benelong was John Howard's seat, the seat he famously lost to Maxine McHugh, a woman from the ABC, um, in the 2007 election. But recently held by Liberal John Alexander, who was the former tennis guy, the new candidate um, has been uh, giving, had a session with an anti-vaxxer group. And when I say anti-vaxxer group, I mean, the cookers who've been standing in the parks, like complaining that, you know, like 5G mosquitoes are giving their dogs the runs or something. It's all, all very difficult to tell. But this this evidence has emerged that the Liberal candidate for Benelong, and this is considered a relatively safe Liberal seat. This is a gift of the party, right? Yeah, like this is a of- gift of the party who told this group of cookers that, um, he would absolutely stand up. He would cross the floor against the Liberal Party to defend their right to resist vaccine mandates, that he would absolutely wow. take a position against the basic public health measures which have kept people 
like my mother and yours also had coronavirus from dying of coronavirus. I'm just like, that's who you pick? The kind of person who sits down with, like, in a in an electorate of how many? What electorates of what? Ninety thousand people. 100, 110 nearly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know, in electorates of that size, you'd prioritize sitting down with the twenty people who hang out in a park with QAnon themed, you know, like bobble boards or whatever they do. You know, like absolutely outrageous. And that's just one of them. That's just one of the people the Liberal Party has prioritized to put into Parliament. Or a what is being traditionally a relatively <laughs> safe Liberal seat. And of course. They've also got a Senate candidate who thinks that this is a Senate candidate in Queensland who, to be fair, is in an unwinnable, what is what would be considered an unwinnable position, but still, you know, could theoretically end up in the Senate, thinks that voters are too fat, eating too many tiny teddies, and are being driven to the polls by lefties in order to vote for the Greens and Labor. Well, like here's some news, man. I'm a lefty and I can't even drive, as Ben knows, unfortunately, all too well. <laughs> but it's it's some it's some Trumpian nonsense. It's some, some out there stuff. So, I, you know, I did miss this. It's entirely possible that my brain just refused to take it in. So Australians are too fat to do what exactly? What are we too fat to do? We just that we're obese. We, our body mass indexes are too high, and we're eating too many tiny teddies, and we're too lazy. There's a I general- don't know if I've ever eaten a tiny teddy. Well, the tiny teddies featured quite strongly in the story, and I don't really know what this person has against tiny teddies. I mean, as a kid, I loved tiny teddies. It was always a treat to find them in my lunchbox. And it's if you're looking for a uh, spokesperson, hit me up. Love a tiny teddy, but uh, that's an unpaid plug, by the way. <laughs> but, but the- yes, everybody knows we're a cooker's household, <laughs> except not a cooker household. Yeah, that's right. Cookers, hey, but not our cooker. favorite biscuits are also our least favorite human being. Yeah, but this person is just way off the planet. But I mean, the sad thing is, she's not alone. I mean, the candidate for Warringah, whose name I refuse to say, that woman's name will not enter my mouth who has said some awful things about trans people in this country. Like there's a video today where she has if literally press-ganged a bunch of people to say how much they love her in this video. It is, if you've ever wanted to see what conscription labour does to a person's enthusiasm, watch <laughs> that video because I've never seen a group. One of them literally walks off when they're being told what to say I'm not sure they were supposed to release the video because it seems like they're giving the instruction and then they're like, yeah, she's our candidate for Warringah. There's less than 20 of them in that park, Van. Like it's, it, it is just a total caravan of chaos. The Home Affairs Minute, like, look, some of, it's, some of it's funny, some of it's disturbing, some of it's actually quite dangerous, right? Like Frydenberg, who is the treasurer, saying that, well, we managed the economy so well uh, because we did JobKeeper. Oh, just forget about all those uh, profitable companies we gave money to. He literally said today, and I could I had to read this like three or four times, that they managed the economy so well that they were feeding zoo animals and feeding the animals at the zoo and the aquariums uh, during the pandemic. And it's like, were we supposed to be eating the zoo animals? <laughs> like. Was I supposed to be dropping a line in the aquarium and frying up some fish? Like, how do these people, like, he was literally referring to, we managed to keep the zoo animals alive. Yeah, I saw Catherine Murphy, who's a very sober commentator, he's yeah. the, you know, the political writer for The Guardian, 
she was, it, it, wasn't she, I think it was Murphy talking about the zoo. It might have even been Samantha Maiden from News just going, why? Like, where did this come from? And, like, we understand. We've seen it. Ben and I, we were there when Jeremy Corbyn just got stuck in a groove talking about bees for an hour. Yeah, you know, that was, oof. Yeah, had quite the effect on us, the Jeremy Corbyn talking about nothing but bees for an hour. Yeah. Just, you know, talking about the economic consequences of climate change probably would have been more electorally useful, but, you know, it happens. It, 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 people short out. But, I mean, with Frydenberg and talking about the Liberal campaign, being in chaos, Frydenberg is debating the independent who is running against him in Kuyong. Like he's the federal treasurer. Yeah. And the idea that there is going to be a, a media attention around debate with an independent is sort of like, to use an analogy I have used in other contexts, it's sort of like a bear going, I'm not frightened of that chihuahua. And it's like, <laughs> if you're a bear, you probably shouldn't have to say that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And yet that's where we are where we are. I mean, lots of backwards and forwards too, right? Like he hasn't just gone, yeah, yeah, I'll turn up I'll turn up in Kuyong and debate this person because they're the candidate. That's fine. I'll turn up. No, no, it became a media circus and Chris Ullman got involved and then Sky got involved and there's going to be one debate at Sky and maybe another one in Kuyong. And like it's this total circus. It, it, like it should have just been – yeah, okay, I'll turn up at the candidate forum and I'm the treasurer and watch me wipe the floor with you bunch of amateurs. That's what it should have been. Yeah, right? that's how these things are supposed to work, but that's not what's going on. And, you know, it does really disturb me because what we're seeing is this absolute chaos and dysfunction of the liberals, you know, the their grasp on the most fundamental principles of economic management is threadbare. I think that's probably the yeah. politest thing I could say. You know, it is a disaster. We're, we've grown terribly, sadly used to the rorts. There is a desperation for a federal ICAC to root out corruption and reestablish some kind of level playing field in this country. But, you know, none of this um, like none of this may have an effect on the electorate. That's what I do get concerned about. I mean, it's one thing for all of us, like the chaser has released an obscene song yes. sampling uh, statements and words uttered by Scott Morrison into lyrics that are, you know, it's, I think we can, can come without revealing them colourful and hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a cut up like what uh, Cassette Boy does in the UK, right? So it's a cut up of things Morrison has said. I mean, it's quite a banging tune and yeah. I would groove to Number it. Number one, I think. Yeah, I felt, I felt the, the hips going, which at my yeah. age is, is usually in the other direction. But, um, and yeah, and it's it's hit the top of the charts, which is, Equally as hilarious as the song is, the fact that it's hit the top of the charts is is just as good. Then some of these things are also quite dangerous, right? Because we we have seen, and I, and I mentioned it before. I think about the Solomon Islands, right? And there's lots of media discussion about this, and and the Solomon Islands doing a deal with China, and what will that mean? And will that mean naval bases? Will that mean you know Chinese navy and air 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 bases two thousand kilometers off the coast of Queensland. We we don't know really yet, right? But the Home Affairs Minister today made some just like outrageously false claims about China doing this deal with the Solomons to interfere in the election. And the reality is actually they did the deal just before a US State Department official was visiting because that's their game. Like we think we're the center of the universe. So much so that the Home Affairs Minister can't delineate 
the reality of what's going on in the Solomon Islands and the Pacific from their own paranoia about the election. At the same time, Morrison was asked about what he meant by we share the same red line on China as the United States. No, he's not telling us what that red line is. He won't share that, right? No, he won't. And so they're going to make these nonsense statements. And, of course, I mean, let's talk about the issue with the Solomon Islands. Quite frankly, they have the right to feel a bit neglected because one of the great legacies of these nine years of Liberal governments has, of course, been massive cuts to foreign aid. Yeah. Massive cuts to foreign aid, specifically foreign aid and the exercise of Australian soft power, which is cultural influence, which is things like exporting Australian television and cultural relationships and close contact and language exchanges, all of these things. All of that has been withdrawn by this Liberal government under yeah. pressure from one nation who I don't really think you should take advice on anything, let alone, you know, the hard edges of materiality for, but their whole thing, oh, cut foreign aid. What are we giving foreign aid for? We give foreign aid so we can exert political influence, so we can support democracy and values that we think is a society pretty good for other countries and their people, specifically their people, to have. And that has been retracted. And, of course, the other problem they have is that they've been trying to make us absolutely terrified China. This has been a Liberal Party yeah. thing. We live in Victoria where, you know, there has been the constant, oh, yes, Daniel Andrews, puppet of the Chinese has been yeah, going yeah. on because we're all supposed to revert to some kind of base level xenophobic racism about, you know, China coming to, I don't know what, like old from our teeth, uh, some crazy kind of thing. And the, you know, what it, Obviously, there's security concerns with the Chinese government. There are security concerns with every foreign government in the world. And expansion of China is a problem, all of these things. But they have created a rod for their own back with all this anti-China scaremongering yeah. that they have been doing that exists outside the reality of trade relationships and diplomatic relationships, yeah. not to mention, you know, the way foreign influence is exerted in, you know, like our zone of, our zone of influence and- in the Pacific. And we should be really clear about this, right? China, what China wants from Australia, Australia sells to China. Yeah, beef. Beef, iron ore, coal. You know, Barnaby Joyce said this on Insiders. If, if they're buying, we're selling. Like that's literally their government's approach. China doesn't have military ambitions about Australia. It has ambitions about how the Pacific and trade routes in the Pacific operate and its freedom to move its navy and what the US does. Frankly, when it comes to us, as Barnaby Joyce says, if they're buying, we're selling. So they're not going to expend lives and military hardware on that. The issue with the Solomons is exactly as you say. Our sphere of influence is the Pacific. These are countries that we've had long relationships with. Our relationship with the Solomon Islands goes back well beyond even even the Second World War. But of course, during the Second World War, the importance of the Solomon Islands to Australia as part of our general supply lines was made very, very clear. So we've had under both Howard and Rudd, we've had AFP on the ground in the Solomons, helping them build their democracy, keep the peace, ensure coups aren't happening, and yet under the Liberal government of Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison, we've now lost that influence. We've lost that relationship. And it's not about controlling the Solomons. It's about who you are working with, who you are trading with, who you can rely on 
if something does go wrong with another nation. And for us to lose the Solomon Islands from that category is a is is a devastating blow to our national interest. Yeah. And, and I say interest, not security there, because it's our national interest. But, I mean, think about it in political terms. The idea that you would expend so much energy trying to create a big bad wolf out of China and then seed a, a Pacific relationship to China is, I mean, it's a problem. Like, it's, it's a huge problem. And Morrison is getting hammered on it, and rightly so. I mean, he sent Zed Zelja. I can't even say his name, and I apologize. Zed Zelja. Uh, you know, the I think Jason Clare made the comment. You know, is this an, is this um, pop fiction or is this Australia's foreign relations? You know, making reference to who's Zed? Zed's dead baby. That fam- famous line from Pop Fiction. Because who is Zed? Who is Zed? Like, well, in, in my experience, Zed Sezelja is a, a hardline right winger from the Liberal Caucus who has one of the safest seats in the country, being the Liberal Senator from the ACT. That's who yeah. he is. You know, he's the kind of person who can afford to have extreme and unrepresented, like politics that are extreme and not representative of the majority of Liberal voters. Actually, unrepresentative of the majority of Liberal voters because his seat there is so safe. And that is the person who is, I mean, it's just all of it. But who else could they sell, send? Bridget McKenzie? I mean, well, the, the maybe they could Minister? send Angus Taylor. I mean, everything he touches turns to gold. I mean, Maurice Payne Taylor. is the Foreign Minister, right? We could have sent the Foreign Minister. Yeah, or Maurice Payne. Or, I mean, or if, it is a, if it is a national security issue, isn't Peter Dutton supposed to be our. Uh, I mean, you can't send Peter Dutton. I mean, come on. Is he I even mean, allowed yeah. to leave so the country? He's, yeah, he's the minister for like anything to do with like things that boys like, but, you know, you can't actually send him into a crisis zone. He wouldn't know what to do. This is a man who complained about me, like literally had a public whinge about me being friends with the Labor chick who's running against him in his seat, Ailey France, who's a superb human being, and was like whinging, oh, well, I don't need the help of playwrights from Melbourne or whatever. And it was like, <laughs> if you're scared of playwrights from Melbourne, buddy, wait till you meet People's Liberation. Yeah, um, that's China. right. <laughs> Wait till you meet the People's Liberation Navy because, yeah, they don't care so much. Look, the good news is, if I can call it good news, is that the coalition campaign is total chaos. They are behind in the polls. Yeah, it's holding despite all of the attacks (laughs) made on Albanese part from Albanese obviously being trapped at home with coronavirus. Labor is still leading 53-47. And in some, I think I saw an AFR one on Sunday or Monday that said it was 55-45. So it's bouncing around in a good place. But, you know, we do have to keep talking about these issues with our friends, with our family, with our workmates. Because if people aren't paying attention and 20% of people make up their minds on the day, Scott Morrison could get back in and all of these disasters will just keep rolling. You know, our jobs won't get better. Our wages won't go up. You know, cost of living will get beyond us. The ordinary person will suffer. Our infrastructure won't get built. Our international relationships will be compromised. And we'll have the kind of people who speak to rooms of cookers promising them they'll cross the floor against common sense public health measures or people telling us that we're all, like, too fat to live or something. Like, we'll have them in parliament. It's it, – it- doesn't bear thinking about. So as, as I always say, put the Liberals last, vote one Labor, number the rest whoever you like. Those are the two parties that are 
vying to be in government, the Liberal slash Liberal National Party slash National Party slash Country Liberal Party. It's actually four brands that they coalition coalition around. Those that grouping wants to be uh, in government, and Labor wants to be in government. So put. The liberals, liberal nationals, nationals, country liberals, whatever they're calling themselves, put them last, put Labor number one, number the rest how you like. That's how you ensure we get a change of government. And that's fundamentally what we need at this election. Now, there are some fantastic, awesome, comradely individuals who help us get the word out to bigger and bigger audiences every single month. We've been running a buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday supporter page where you can go and you can become one of these individuals. You can make a one-off contribution. You can make a buck a week contribution. You can make a 10 buck a month or $20 a month contribution. And our cadre who make $20 a month contributions do get a video, an extra video once a month, plus, of course, a shout out on the show and our extended reach, uh, extended reach supporters get a shout out on the show as well. Then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the cadre. You're going to do the cadre? And then Is I'll it? just go. Okay. Cadre. Leona Gibbons, someone, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Christine Cole, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atley Archer, Linda Cartwright, Atley Ann Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Naranga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Roll, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White, and Blue Lou. And then our Extend the Reach supporters are someone Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannam, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Gal Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter. Wives, Sarah, Bo Sullivan, Elaine and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, also known as at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lupino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bale. You all make the show possible. And speaking of making the show possible, Benjamin is going to be on Lance TV this week. Yes, yeah, I am. I'm going to be on Lance TV on Channel 31 if you're in Victoria. Also, Facebook Live right around the nation. Uh, Be talking about, I think, a little bit about growing up in Ballarat, which is, of course, where Lance TV is shot. And, of course, the state of politics in the nation, uh, probably quite relevant given uh, the election that we are currently in. Yeah, I reckon talking about politics during the election is, is a good thing. I think I think it'll be yeah. I, I think, think it's a good be. thing. I think it's how democracy works. Yeah. So obviously, guys, um, if there are things you want us to talk about, uh, get in contact. Contact us through the Week on Wednesday Facebook page or internet account um, because we do try and answer people's questions about political processes and economics. We obviously can't answer everything, but we try and push our answers in those directions so you get the information you need to make the decisions that are best for you. Don't forget also to check out On The Job, the official podcast of Australian Unions, where they have interviewed Sally McManus, leader of the trade union movement, uh, in this week's episode. Fantastic interview. Really recommend that. Uh, And don't forget, uh, you'll hear me do the weekend wrap, 
I even managed to convince Van to join me in the car uh, as we drive between events uh, for a quick wrap up of the week's events. That, I think, is the show for this week. Oh, my God. Ben and I also wanted to thank everybody for being so kind to us um, when my mother was in hospital and also when he and I were so sick and had to edit all our coughs out of our last couple of broadcasts. We are feeling much better now. We're still not 100%, though. Yeah, it's been lingering around. But do like, share, comment. That helps grow uh, the audience. It helps get the message out there. Uh, don't forget to leave a review if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts. Do leave us a review. It helps other people see it on Apple Podcasts and, again, helps more and more people get the message. Until we speak on Sunday, love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you. I miss you too. Bye. Bye.